it's, I always find it difficult when people ask me, who I meet for the first time, what do you do? Because people have all sorts of preconceptions and misconceptions. When you say I'm a minister or a, a Church of Ireland minister, that throws them a little bit more generally. Um, and and, and they, they just don't really know because they've got all these ideas in their head of what a minister lives like and what a minister does. And, uh, and they, sometimes they back off and they become distant. Sometimes they ask all sorts of hard, awkward questions. And, and there's all sorts of preconceptions and misconceptions. But it's not only outside the church. Sometimes even within the church, I think people have kind of weird view of ministry and they kind of I think sometimes not you lot because you are, are, are know me by this stage but some people kind of just assume that all we do every night is just like pray and read the bible together I mean that's what I do Becky's out clubbing normally but um <laughs> I'm the holy one in the family but but there's this kind of there's this there's this misconception sometimes about life outside church as if we don't have a life outside church. And for me, I, I remember when I was first ordained, uh, maybe a couple of years into my, my ordination, I was in Tesco in Lurgan one day. Um, and uh, I was in the frozen food aisle and I ran into a parishioner. And uh, she uh, immediately said to me, what are you doing here? <laughs> like shoplifting? Uh, you know, like, like probably the same as you're doing here like buying food. But in her head, she couldn't conceive that a minister actually has to eat. I remember I was in uh, the doctor's one day in the, in the waiting room and another parishioner came in and she said, what are you doing here? I mean, do you want me to tell the whole room what's going on with my personal medical history right now? But they couldn't conceive that a minister would go to the doctor. I mean, we don't ask that if you're a teacher or if you're a bin man or if you're whatever else you do. People don't see you in Tesco and go, what are you doing here? Because they just assume that you're doing what they're doing. But for some reason, when you do this, they have all sorts of preconceptions and misconceptions about you. What are you doing here? Did anyone ever ask you that when they see you somewhere? Maybe they see you on holidays, you bump into somebody in Spain and Mallorca, and uh, Palmanovi, and uh, you're sitting by the pool and somebody from local around, what are you doing here? I'm on holidays. What are you doing here? I'm on holidays too, but let's not have holidays together. Um, but what are you doing here? That's a question that God asks in the passage we're looking at this morning. What are you doing here, Elijah? Twice God asks Elijah that question, and that's the title of our message. What are you doing here? Because when God asks a question, it's not because God doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants you to search your heart and examine yourself and ask yourself, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Not in church, but what are you doing here in your life at the moment? Are you where you want to be? Are you in the place that you thought you would be? And if you're not, how did you get here? Because when God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? What he's really saying is, how did you get to this place? Because you're not in the place that I want you to be. How did you get here? What are you doing here? Most of you will know that Elijah was a significant prophet in the Old Testament. He arrived on the scene in Israel at a time of great immorality and at a, at a low point in Israel's history. The king was Ahab. And he was pretty spineless. He was passive. And that suited his wife perfectly because she was Jezebel. And she was domineering and in charge. And that some people joke that the last time um, 
Elijah made a decision. It was when he said, I do. And after that, Jezebel made every decision for him. Because she was a foreign queen. She, it was a political marriage. She was a Phoenician. And when she arrived in Israel, she brought her gods with her. She didn't come in and, and adopt Yahweh as her god. She brought her pagan gods. And she especially loved this one god called Baal. And because Ahab was such a weak, passive leader, he just went along with everything that Jezebel did and said. And it got me thinking about the situation today with leadership. And there's a lot of stuff going on about leadership and leadership in the church. And there's a lot of things, and this isn't in my notes, and I, I, I don't, but let me just say this. God raises up leaders in every area of life. And God raises up people to lead his people at particular times in history. God raised up Elijah at such a time as this. God raised up Ahab, but Ahab was a weak leader. And we need to be very careful at the moment that we don't demonize people who lead strongly. I heard somebody say this a few years ago. People don't like a strong leader until they have a weak leader. And when you look at America right now, you can see that being played out. But when we look at the church right now, one of my concerns right now is that we're demonizing people. Now, I'm not talking about abuse or manipulation. Please hear me on that. You know me. Where there's abuse or manipulation, that needs to be called out and it needs to be exposed. But here's the problem with the term spiritual abuse. If everything is spiritual abuse, nothing is spiritual abuse. And if you call everything spiritual abuse, it actually negates the experience of those who have suffered real spiritual abuse. Sometimes what people call spiritual abuse is just a shepherd looking after his sheep and protecting them from the wolves. Not always. Please hear me on that. But my concern is that if every time we label strong leadership as spiritual abuse, all we are left is, is with weak leaders. Leaders who are afraid to lead. Leaders who are afraid to make the hard decisions. Leaders who are afraid to call things out. Ahab was a weak leader and where there's weak leadership, Satan always exploits that vacuum. And he does it here with Queen Jezebel, the pagan queen, who comes and begins to turn the hearts of the people of God away from Yahweh, the one true God, and she turns them further and further towards her God, Baal. And those who won't worship Baal, eventually she begins to persecute, and then she begins to kill because that's what our culture does. When it turns away from God, it tries to make you worship other things, other ideologies, other views. And at first it's optional, and after a while it's not optional. You either toe the line, you believe what we believe, you say what we say, and if you have a contrary opinion, we cancel you, we persecute you, we get you fired. And that's our culture today. We have turned from a, a nation and a people who worship God to a people who are following other gods. And it's not just that we're following other gods. Anyone who still worships the one true God is in danger of losing their job, being persecuted, being cancelled, or going to jail. That's our culture where we are today. And that's why we don't need abusive or manipulative leadership, but we need strong, godly leadership in every part of life in education, in the workplace, in business, 
in industry, in commerce, in whatever part of life you're in, in the security forces. We need strong, godly leadership at a time of crisis. And I believe that in the earth we're living in a, an unusual time of crisis. And the enemy's trying to target strong leaders because they're the people who will stand up against what the enemy wants to do. But we need to support strong leaders in whatever sphere of influence. Not let them get away with stupidity. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to stand with strong leaders instead of demonizing strong leadership. Ahab may have worn the crown, but Jezebel wore the trousers. And she enforces Baal worship. And in the midst of this, God raises up Elijah the prophet who speaks his word, who proclaims his truth and calls people back from worship of Baal to worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And Elijah has this incredible ministry. He proclaims for three and a half years, it's not going to rain and not a drop of rain comes. God feeds him at the brook Kerith. By, by ravens. Ravens every day come in. It's like Uber Eats. They arrive every day with KFC or McDonald's or I don't know what it was. But Elijah never goes hungry for three and a half years. Then the brook dries up and God speaks to him and says, Go to a widow in Zarephath. She has no food, but God supernaturally provides food through this woman. And then the woman's son dies and Elijah raises him back to life. And then in chapter 18, the chapter before we're looking at today, we have this mountaintop experience where there's Elijah on one side, 850 false prophets on the other side, and there's this kind of okay corral moment. Ooh, he nearly fell. And, uh, and, and, and so... Um, they start calling down fire from heaven and they start cutting themselves and they start doing all this crazy stuff and fire doesn't fall. And Elijah, he's a bit cocky. He gets buckets of water and starts pouring it all over the wood. And then he calls down fire from heaven and the fire comes and consumes the, the sacrifice and the people turn back to Yahweh and they slaughter 850 false prophets of Baal. That is the height of Elijah's experience. That is the mountaintop. That is the peak. That is everything he has ever wanted. That is is his moment. That's where we leave him at the end of 1 Kings 18. And you'd think he would be dancing a conga, popping champagne corks, just having the best time because this is everything he's ever wanted. But when you get to chapter 19, that's not where we find him. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So we have this scene of, I'm the false prophet, get me out of here, but 850 false prophets get slaughtered. Ahab doesn't know what to do. He comes back to his wife with his tail between his legs. She says, what's happened, Ahab? He says, I don't know, but all, all the false prophets are dead. And she says, I'm going to kill Elijah. And she actually takes an oath. She says, may, God, may the gods, small g, may the gods destroy me in 24 hours if I don't kill Elijah. And she sends a messenger to Elijah with this threat. Does she not know who she's talking to? This is Elijah. This is the mighty, valiant, powerful, strong man of God, dynamic and fearless, whose words can stop the rain, whose words can call down fire from heaven. And she thinks a threat's going to annoy him. I would expect his response to be, bring it on, woman. I will do to you what I did to the 850 prophets. That's what I would expect. But this is what I get in verse 3. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Elijah was afraid. It doesn't make sense. This can't be the same Elijah, not the fearless, bold man of God. But it is the same Elijah because as one pastor of mine used to say, even the best of men are at best still just men. And even prophets are just people. And even heroes are just human. And humans have limits. And humans have weaknesses. And humans have breaking points. And humans have vulnerabilities. And that's what we're going to see here. Look at what we read next, verses 3 to 9. When he, that's Elijah, came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave, spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's verse 9. Verse 13, Elijah's in the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Twice in four verses, God asks him the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And because God's asking him it, What God is saying is this, Elijah, you're not in the right place. You're not where I want you to be. You have moved out of the place where I sent you and where I set you, and you've moved to a place where you're not meant to be right now. And so, Elijah, I want to ask you, what are you doing here? I want to ask you, how did you end up here? And that's what I want to look at for a few moments. How did Elijah end up somewhere that he wasn't meant to be? And how can we avoid ending up? Because we all end up in places that we're not meant to be. And it's normally not one decision. It's normally a series of steps. There's a number of things. Nobody sets out to be in the wrong place. You just take wrong turns. And Elijah made some wrong turns along the way. And if we know the wrong turns he made, we can avoid making those. How did Elijah end up in a place he wasn't meant to be? The first one is this. Elijah is exhausted. Elijah is exhausted. For over three years, he has been standing against this torrent and this tide of idolatry and the nation being backslidden. He's witnessed many great victories. He's seen the power of God and incredible things. He's been pretty much running on adrenaline for three years. And now that this mountaintop experience is over, he's nothing left to give. As he descends Mount Carmel, It might be a physical descent, but it's also an emotional and a mental descent because he ends up at rock bottom. He ends up at a really low place. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, he has nothing more to give. He is totally depleted. His tank, his emotional tank is completely empty. Apparently, the Greeks had a saying, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. In other words, constant tension and relentless stress can break even the strongest person. And Elijah has has had constant tension and he's had relentless stress. You see, Elijah isn't weak, he's just weary. 
But too much pressure and too much tension over too long a time will break even the strongest person. The New Testament book of James tells us this. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. What he's saying is that even the best of men are at best still just men. And heroes are still human. Elijah's had enough. It says here that Elijah ran for his life. I think a better way of putting it was Elijah was running from his life. He's running from everything because he simply doesn't want to fight any more battles. He's been fighting and fighting and standing and standing and giving and giving and pouring out and pouring out and he just has nothing left to give. He doesn't really want to die. He just doesn't want to continue living the way he's living. Because you can only do so much and give so much before you have nothing left to give. And there comes a point where you just want to run away. You just want to get away from it all. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a place where you think, I just want to run away? I want to get away from here. I was talking to somebody this week who told me that they'd been feeling that that they'd never experienced it before, but they were just feeling so much pressure and work and all other parts of their life. And they said, I just want to run away from it all. I have been there at times, I'm sure most of us have, where you keep giving and pouring and you're running adrenaline and you're meeting needs and you're doing what's right and then one day you hit a wall. It's a bit like your bank account. If you're constantly making withdrawals without making deposits, eventually you go into overdraft and then you go bankrupt. In life, if we're constantly depositing and giving and giving without taking anything in, eventually you are empty and eventually you have nothing left to give. I've seen it happen with other people. I've seen it happen with leaders. I've seen it happen with church leaders. Some of you will have seen leaders who fight battles and they do amazing during the battle, but once the battle is over, they fall to pieces. The smallest little thing and they crumble. And you think back to the battle and how amazing and brave and courageous and strong they were. And you think this little thing caused you to crumble. But it wasn't this little thing. It was all of this. And this was just the, one of the few straws that broke the camel's back. Because heroes are still human. And humans get tired and weary. And Elijah's been on this winning streak for three and a half years. He's had success after success. But winning can be just as exhausting as losing. The pressure of success can drain you even more than the frustration of failure. We don't think about that very often. But when I was reflecting on my own life and the time I reached my lowest point in life, it wasn't that I had failure after failure after failure. That can happen. It was actually because God had blessed us with so much success in our ministry at that time. God had grown things so quickly, and I didn't have the structures or the capacity to handle it all. Sometimes it's not failure or frustration, it's success. But it can be just as exhausting. For three and a half years, Elijah's been on the front line of drama, strife, opposition, and conflict, and he just has no more fight left in him. Any other time, this threat from Jezebel would not have phased him one iota. I mean, it was only a threat. 
If she'd really wanted to kill him, she wouldn't have sent a messenger. She'd have sent a hitman. It was just a threat that got in his head. It was just words. But it's amazing how words can affect you. Isn't it? It's amazing how you can read a comment on social media or somebody can say something and it's just words, but those words get in your head and then they get in your heart and they totally affect how you live. You see, you can have Jesus in your heart but have Jezebel in your head. You can have God in your life, but you can be controlled and consumed by fear at the same time if you allow the enemy to plant seeds because the enemy loves to exploit us in our tiredness and our weariness and our exhaustion. The enemy loves to find you when you have just nothing left to give. I remember a number of years ago, I spent a day with a church leader who was leading a very large church at the time and it was well known, and it was growing, and I loved meeting him, and I was so impressed by the work, but as we talked more and more that day, I realized he was just carrying too much weight. He had too much on his shoulders, and I said this to him, and I said, you cannot sustain this, and he sort of brushed me off at the time, and six months later, it was found out that he was having an affair with a much younger girl in church, and it was splattered all over the papers here. And I'm sure there were many reasons for that, but I can't help but believe one of them were was that he was just too tired. And the enemy saw a doorway and exploited his exhaustion. As we'll see in a few moments, when you get to that point, you stop thinking rationally. You don't see things as they are, you see things as you are. And you only see them through the lens of how you feel. Elijah's not in a good place because he's exhausted. And maybe you're exhausted today. Maybe you're, you're counting the days until the Christmas break. Or maybe some of you are overwhelmed by the thought of Christmas because it's just more stuff to do. You've done so well up to this point because that's what you do. But deep down you're weary. We're going to look at a moment at what God does to bring healing to Elijah and what might help you. But let me say this to you. Exhaustion isn't failure. Some of you need to know that. Being tired doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you're human. And it probably means you've been carrying weight and responsibility and pouring out. And maybe God wants you to, instead of making withdrawals, to make some deposits in this season. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? He's exhausted. Secondly, and related to the first point, what are you doing here, Elijah? He isolated himself. Look at verse 3 and 4. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Well, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So Elijah leaves the one person who is with him behind, and he goes off and he isolates himself in the wilderness. That's my tendency. I've got to be honest. My tendency when I'm tired when I'm weary, when I feel overwhelmed, isn't to go and ask for help or be around people. It is to isolate myself from people. As someone who's more introverted, I get energy from being on my own. I kind of like my own company. Hard to believe, but I do. I kind of like being around myself. Some people get energized around people. Some people get energized on their own. Don't they, Stephen? I know Stephen's similar to me in that way. And we love, it's not that we don't like people. 
And it's not that we're shy. Sometimes people confuse introversion with being shy. We're not shy. No shocker there. Um, we're not, no, introverts aren't shy. They just get energized in a different way. Extroverts get energized by socializing and parties and being in crowds. Introverts can do that for a while, but then they get energized by withdrawing and reading a book and praying or being quiet or taking time out. But I've discovered my tendency for isolation isn't healthy. I need people. You see, when God said to Adam in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone, it wasn't just about marriage. It was about being human. And as humans, we are created for connection. We are formed for family. And if you don't have people around you that you can pour your heart out to, who you can be honest with, people who you can call up and just talk about your day, people who you can share your life with, people who you can be transparent with, if you don't have at least some people, you won't have a lot of them, but if you don't have some people like that, your life is going to be deficient in some way. We need people around us. We don't need lots of them, but we do need some of them. Elijah isolated himself, and now he's pouring out his heart, but the only person he's pouring out his heart to is God. And while prayer is wonderful and we should pour out our hearts to God, we also need other people who can come alongside us and be with us when we need them. What are you doing here, Elijah? How did you get here? He isolated himself. Number three, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's thinking emotionally, not rationally. Look at verse four with me. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. It sounds like a, a complete, you know, it, it, those of you who have children, like, they can be quite dramatic at times, can't they? They can overreact, especially when they're tired. Like Elijah, when he gets tired, gets a little bit emotional. That's how we know he's, I'm not tired. Yes, you are tired, Elijah. We can tell. Because everything's a huge deal right now. And when everything is a huge deal, it's because you're exhausted. And, and Elijah here in the Bible is overreacting. He's being overdramatic. And it doesn't even really make sense when you see what he says. He says, God, kill me. Does he really want to die? No. Because what was Jezebel threatened to do? Kill him. If he really wanted to die, all he had to do was stay where he was and not run away. He doesn't want to die. <laughs> Look at what he says next, 9 and 10. Therein he went into a cave because us men like our men, man caves. And he spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Everyone's trying to kill me. Is that true? No. Only one person's trying to kill him? Jezebel. I'm the only one left. Is he the only one left? No. In the previous chapter, we read about another guy called Obadiah who says he has hidden 100 of the Lord's prophets. And later on in this, the Lord says to him, I have preserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He thinks he's the only one. He thinks he's all alone. Nobody else has it as bad as he has. Everybody else is doing the wrong thing and he's the only one doing the right thing. And God says to him, actually, there's over 7,000. So dry your eyes. Like you're not the only one. But when we get into that place, we develop this victim mentality. I'm the only one. Nobody has it as bad as me. I'm the one who always does everything. I'm the only one. It's always me. Because we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. 
When you're weary and exhausted, you stop thinking rationally. When you're weary and exhausted, you get fearful, and fear stops you from thinking rationally. Didn't we see that in 2020? Remember people fighting over loo rolls and pasta? Like, even now, like, none of it made sense at the time. As you look back at it, fear causes people to do stupid things. And when you get weary, you get fearful. Someone once said this, fear makes a coward out of all of us. Or sorry, tiredness makes a coward out of all of us. Tiredness makes you afraid of things that you wouldn't normally be afraid of. Tiredness and exhaustion makes you feel overwhelmed by things that you would normally be able to handle. You stop thinking rationally. You stop thinking rationally about other people. You stop thinking rationally about your own life. And you stop thinking rationally about situations. You even begin to get a little bit paranoid. Elijah's like, everybody's trying to get me. They're not. But you, when you get that tired, you start to see things that aren't even there. Your emotions start dictating your behavior. And there's nothing wrong with emotions. God made us to be emotional creatures. But here's the thing about emotions. Emotions are great indicators, but they're terrible dictators. Emotions are great indicators when you feel sad, when you feel frustrated, when you feel down. It's indicating something about you. It's telling you, it's trying to draw your attention to something. Like the little light on the dashboard of your car. It's telling you, pay attention to something. Something needs addressed. That's an emotion. It's a good indicator, but it's a terrible dictator. Because when you live by your emotions, you will be all over the place. Because your emotions are all over the place. You cry for no reason. You give up on things you can do easily. You feel overwhelmed by the smallest thing. Elijah here sounds suicidal. He wants to end his life all because of a threat from a woman called Jezebel. When you get too exhausted and emotional, you tend to overreact. Sometimes you end up making permanent decisions based on temporary conditions. You say and do things that can't be undone. We've all done it. In the height of emotion, all of us at times have said and done things, and afterwards we think, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And don't look at me like I'm the only one, because we've all done it at times. We've said and done things in the height of an argument or in the height of emotion that we have regretted. The problem is that we are living at a time when people put emotions higher than truth. Emotions are higher than facts in our culture. People 30 years ago used to say, I think. This is what I think. Now what do they say? I feel. Everything is about how we feel. Don't you say that's wrong because that makes me feel bad. Don't you tell me that I shouldn't live that kind of lifestyle because that hurts my feelings and it feels right to me. Don't you dare say that because that offends me that... And, and my feelings are more important than facts. And my feelings are more important than truth. I feel like a woman. But you've got a beard and bits. And <laughs> we'll edit that from the... But I feel like a woman. And so you'd better call me she. But your name's Bob. No, it's Barbara. I feel like a Barbara. You'd better call me Barbara. All right, Bob. Um, but... But we're driven by feelings. We're driven by emotions. And it's crazy. We're living in a crazy culture because we all don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. 
And so feelings become more important than facts, and feelings become more important than truth. And we don't go around just offending people for the sake of it, but when you start buying into this stuff, you actually start telling lies. If I tell Bob that Bob is Barbara, it might make him feel better for a moment or two, but what I'm doing is I'm actually telling a lie. And when you start telling lies like that, you keep going down that road. We're not called to offend people, but we are called to speak truth and reality into situations. That's why we need to continually feed our minds on the Word of God, because it is truth. And the Word of God renews our minds. And as our minds are renewed, our hearts are changed, and it brings our feelings into line with truth. We don't want to be driven by what we feel. We want to be driven by what God says. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're thinking emotionally, not rationally. Number four, and we're nearly done. What are you doing here, Elijah? He stopped seeking God's direction. Because if you look back at the chapters before this, we read again and again, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Then the word of the Lord came to him. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In other words, in this, up to this point in Elijah's life, Elijah only moved in response to the word of the Lord. God spoke to Elijah, Elijah listened, and Elijah obeyed. But here in chapter 19, there is no record of God speaking and telling him to go where he's going. He's driven by emotion. He's driven by his feelings, not by the word of God. And he ends up 400 miles south of where he's meant to be. Because if you don't live according to the word of God and the voice of God, you will always end up in the wrong place. Let me repeat that. If you don't live your life, I spat in it. If you don't live your life, you give me that look. <laughs> if you don't live your life according to the word of God and the voice of God, you always end up in the wrong place. You cannot live wrong and feel right. You cannot live a lie and end up in truth. And if you don't live by the word of God, you will always end up in the wrong place. Because your decisions determine your direction, and your direction determines your destination. And if you're somewhere that you never wanted to be, go back to the thoughts you had and the feelings you had that started you down the path and brought you there. And that's why it's so important that our minds are renewed by the word of God. When you listen to the wrong people, you end up in the wrong place. That's why your parents were so worried when you were at school about who your friends were, because they knew that bad company corrupts good character. When you listen to the wrong people, you end up in the wrong place. When you watch and listen to the wrong things continually, you end up in the wrong place. When you feed your mind on lies or lust, you end up in the wrong place. Be careful what you open up your mind to, what you open up your heart to, because what you open yourself up to will begin to actually work inside you and it will lead you to a destination. Make sure that's a destination you want to go to and it's a place that God is leading you to. That's why God says to Elijah, go back the way you came. In other words, where you are right now is not where I want you to be. I want you to get up, I want you to turn around, and I want you to go back. What did we call that a few weeks ago in the sermon? Begins with R and ends with repentance. <laughs> repentance. Basically, that's what God says. I want you to repent. I want you to get up, 
I want you to turn around and I want you to go back. You're going down the wrong road, so go back the way you came. What are you doing here, Elijah? You stopped seeking God's direction. That's how you got here. Lastly, in this section, and then just three wee quick points at the end. What are you doing here, Elijah? He's forgotten all that God has done in his life. He's forgotten all that God has done in his life. I'm not a huge fan of Facebook, but I do stay on it for various reasons. And the one thing I do love about Facebook is that it brings up memories. Some of you are like, yeah, my spouse does that. It brings up memories, brings up the past. But Facebook will bring up things five years ago on this day or seven years ago. And this week it did it a few times. And it was a lot of things around 2015, 2016, 2017. There was this photo of, of me and Elijah here. Oh, look at that. Look at the head of her and that child right there. That was 2015. And the next one then, when Elijah got his finger caught in the door and the top of it was hanging off by a thread and the blood was flying all over the walls. Enjoy your lunch, folks. Um, (laughs) Take that down now. But you know what? As I looked at those memories this week, it reminded me of God's faithfulness. 2015, 2016, 2017 was a very significant place in our lives. It was a difficult season, but we saw God's faithfulness again and again and again and again. And looking at those memories and different ones and thinking about it, I just was reminded of how good he is and how faithful he is and how kind he is because we have selective amnesia sometimes. We forget things we should remember and we remember things we need to forget. And when we look at our lives and we look at our history, God has been so faithful. In your individual life, in your family, in this church, he has been faithful, he has been kind, he has been good, he has provided again and again and again. And then we had a rough spot and we totally forget about everything he's done and we throw ourselves into a panic. You know, the Bible says, the face forward. It says, do not remember the former things. There are times when we need to remember the former things, but we need to drag our history into our present to give us faith to face whatever's lying in front of us. Elijah has seen God do so much. He has seen God do incredible things, but he has forgotten all of it in this moment. And when you forget God in your history, you become fearful about your future. That's what I love about David. When David is standing in front of Goliath, he says, I fought the lion and the bear. I can take him. He looks back and pulls that forward into his present to face the future. Elijah has forgotten all about God's faithfulness, all about God's provision, all about God's power in his past. What are you doing here, Elijah? You've forgotten what God has done in your past. Quickly as I finish up here, what does God do with Elijah? First thing he does is God cares for his physical needs. God cares for his physical needs. Verses 5 to 8. Then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. At once the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. Get up and eat. Man, that's a memory verse for the week. Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel for the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate 
and drank. Elijah's ran for hundreds of miles over the course of 40 days. He hides under a burst and he hides in a cave. But every single moment of that journey, God knew exactly where he was. Elijah gets to his destination and discovers that God's already got there before him. And God shows up, not with condemnation, not with shame, not with accusation. God shows up and meets his needs. Elijah needed a lot of things. But right now, what he needs most is some rest and some food. So God looks after his physical needs. God sends an angel not to kill him, but to cook for him. And places it right by his head, so he doesn't even have to get up. Of course, there's issues in his soul that need to be dealt with, but that can happen later, because right now, his physical needs are more important. And I want to say to you, God cares about every aspect of your life today. Not just the spiritual part, not just the Christian part, not just the church part. God cares about every aspect of your life. If it matters to you, it matters to him. God cares about your emotions. God cares about your family. God cares about your marriage. God cares about your job. God cares about your health. God cares about your finances. God cares about your relationships. God cares about every aspect of your life. There's no part of your life that he's not interested in. Elijah is so exhausted that he eats and then he immediately falls back asleep. And so God wakes him up again for a second meal. So it's rest and eat, rest and eat. That's a word for some of us right now. That's what some of us need to do. We don't need to be running around. We need rest and we need nourishment. It's almost too simple. But small changes can make a huge difference. I remember years ago when I was training for the ministry, I was working as a postman for the summer, and I loved it, actually. But I realized as the summer went on, I was feeling lower and lower, and there was no reason for it because I was just genuinely enjoying life. And I couldn't understand why I was beginning to feel really down. And then I, just, I thought about it and went, I'm getting up at 5 a.m. six days a week, and I'm not going to bed after midnight. I was just tired. You could have prayed for me all day long. I could have went to every Bible study in the country. It wouldn't have made a difference. I just needed to go to bed earlier. And when I did that, I began to feel better. Sometimes we just need to look after our physical needs. We're whole people. We're not just spirits or souls. We're spirits, soul, body, mind, will, emotions. We're whole people. And an imbalance in one part will affect every other part. Rest and eat. Rest and eat. Take care of your physical needs. Number two, God comes close and speaks to him. Look at verse 11 to 13. The Lord said... Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, earth, wind, and fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? In the midst of his burnout and his heartache and his discouragement and his despair and his despondency and his depression and his pain, God speaks to him. And I love how God speaks to him. 
Not in the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire. In other words, not in all the dramatic ways that Elijah is used to God speaking, but God speaks in a gentle whisper. It's the only time in Scripture where we see God whispering. In other words, God meets him in a different way than he's used to God meeting him. And some of us are used to God speaking to us in a certain way. And I want to say to you, that's wonderful, whatever way God speaks to you, but why don't we open ourselves up to God speaking to us in different ways? Maybe you're used to the dramatic, maybe it's going to be a gentle whisper. Maybe you're used to a gentle whisper, maybe it's going to become more obvious. And God doesn't speak words of shame, condemnation, or criticism. He just says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He doesn't shout it in anger. He whispers it in compassion and love. It's almost like God stoops right down and gets close to Elijah and whispers in his ear, what are you doing here, Elijah? This isn't where I want you to be. This isn't where I call you to be. You know, I love loud worship. I love all of this. But there's certain times when I just need quiet. There's certain times when I just need to get on my knees or on my face and just stay there until I hear his whisper. And here's the thing about a whisper. For you to hear a whisper, you need to be quiet and you need to be close. You need to be quiet and you need to be close. And in this Christmas season, where there's so much noise and busyness and activity and people and parties and presents and services and all of this stuff going on, some of us need to find that quiet place. That quiet place. We need to get away. We need to do what the Bible says, go into our room, close the door. And we need to get on our knees. And we need to say, God, I need to hear your whisper because I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm not sure if anything else to give. God, I need to hear your voice. And finally, God recommissions him. Look at verses 15 to 18. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, Son of Snapchat, Shaphat, from Abel Mahaloa, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any escape the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000. 7,000. I'm the only one. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed the knee to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah thinks he's finished. In his exhaustion and his weariness, he just thinks he's done. He thinks he's nothing left to give. And because he thinks he's done, he thinks God's done with him. He thinks he, he wants to just resign. He thinks God has just had enough of him because he has had enough of him. But God shows up and God says, I'm not finished with you yet. I've got a new mission should you choose to accept it. I've got a new assignment for you. And it's not the same as before. It's different, but it's still me. It's not the end of the story. It's just the end of a chapter. And I'm writing a new chapter for you now. 
This assignment might be finished, Elijah, but you're not finished. Don't give up on yourself because I haven't given up on you. You know, in 33 years of being a Christian, there's been times when I've given up on me. There's times when I think, God, why? How can you be bothered with me? But here's what I've discovered. God hasn't given up on me. And I want to tell you that God hasn't given up on you. No matter where you are, no matter how you feel, no matter how distant you are, no matter how far you've run, no matter how big a mess you've made of things, I want to tell you God hasn't given up on you. It might be the end of a chapter, but it's not the end of the story. And God can write a brand new chapter. God will meet you where you are. Maybe today you find yourself somewhere like Elijah was. You're weary, you're burnt out, you're exhausted, and you're just not sure you have anything else to give. God wants to come to you today. God wants to impart his strength to you. God wants to minister to your weariness. God wants to fill your mind with his truth. And God wants to remind you that he's still with you. He's still for you. And that he hasn't finished with you.